before I was reminded of that, I was going to say that Easter is a paradox of uh, Christian holy days uh, for me. Theologians say that Easter is the most important event of our faith. Uh, The Apostle Paul says that if Easter didn't happen, Christians are to be pitied above all other people. If we're believing in some sort of a lie, we are pitiful people. And if I were writing down the Easter story in in hopes of compelling people to believe that a person who claimed to be the son of God died a criminal's death and then had been uh, raised back to life three days later, I would try to make that story just as spectacular as I possibly could, right? I I would want people to know what a big deal Easter is. And here comes the paradox. Because when you look at the biblical account of Easter, it's about as unspectacular as as you could possibly get. Uh, When we read the Easter story in the Bible, the the scene is quiet. Uh, It's not night, but it's not yet day. Uh, There there are no explosions of light, no angel choirs singing glory to God in the highest. It's not there in this story like it is at Easter. Uh, there's, There's some birds chirping as dawn breaks, but... In a way, that just shows that the rest of creation has moved on as if none of the events of the past week has happened. Uh, For most of the world, it's an ordinary day, first day of the week. Uh, It would be Monday for us, Sunday for them. Uh, It's a day to go back to work, back to the grind, right? Except for Jesus' friends. Uh, The day may be unspectacular for them, but it's anything but ordinary. Their their rabbi, their teacher, their friend, whom they've followed around the Galilean countryside for the last three years, is dead. They, They had thought that he was who he said he was, the promised Messiah. They thought he was the one who would finally overthrow Rome, their their oppressor. Finally set things right. But, but those hopes are, are dashed now. They're, they're gone now. Because two days ago, he was executed brutally uh, for claiming to be the king of the Jews. And now his body lay cold in a tomb with a massive rock rolled across the front of it to deter uh, thieves or, or wild animals. For any of you who have lost a loved one, and and most of us have, you know that the day after, the days after, are not ordinary. And for these friends and followers of Jesus, this day is not ordinary. It's a lingering nightmare for them. They'd love nothing more than to just wake up and discover the whole thing was a really, really bad dream, that those images that are burned into their minds were just a bad dream. And at the beginning of the third day since that horrific event, the world is 
waking up and going on with life as if he never existed. But for these friends of Jesus, the grief is, is crushing. It's, it's overwhelming. That, friends, is the context of John chapter 20. That's what leads up to John chapter 20. And in the opening verses of chapter 20, we learn that before daylight on Sunday morning, a woman named Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and found that the stone had been rolled away from the entrance to the tomb. I think because we're familiar with the story, we might be guilty of projecting what we know about the story onto the characters in this story. And we would be wrong to do that because Mary didn't go to the tomb anticipating a resurrection. Mary didn't go there uh, early to, to get a good seat for this spectacular event. The other gospel writers tell us that she was there with three other women carrying 50 to 75 pounds of burial spices. Uh, they, they were going to finish the rushed and uncompleted ceremonial burial that was given to Jesus on Friday afternoon. Mary was there to see a dead person. So when she arrives and sees that the tomb is open, not sealed with the large stone as it was on Friday night, she runs to get the other disciples. And as we're going to see, there's a lot of running that goes on in John chapter 20, especially in these opening verses. And when she gets to the disciples, she announces with great excitement, He is risen! And they respond with equal excitement, He is risen indeed! Is that what verse 2 says? Mary immediately assumes someone has stolen the body. I, I said that Mary ran to get Peter and John. Actually, John's name isn't mentioned here. In fact, John never refers to himself by name in the story he tells about Jesus. He's, he's always calling himself the other disciple or the disciple Jesus loved. Some Bible scholars say it's John's way of, of being humble in his writing, not using his own name. Others see it as a bit of one-upmanship, you know, kind of like little kids. Mom and dad love me most, right? Or maybe, maybe John is just so amazed that Jesus would go to the cross for him, so aware of his sin that He's overwhelmed with how much Jesus must love him. Luke's gospel tells us that Peter and John were business partners. They were commercial fishermen together. If you've been around fishermen, which we've got a number of them here, this hasn't been a great season so far, but usually about this time of year, there's some competition that's going on as far as who's caught the most fish. Um, maybe... There's a little bit of a competitive spirit we see in these next verses. Uh, verse 3, when Mary tells them that someone has taken the body, Peter and John take off running in a foot race to the tomb. I think it's kind of funny that John just can't seem to resist the opportunity to let us know who got there first. 
He runs faster. He gets there first. And he bends over to look inside and he sees the linen cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' body. John's mind is, is probably racing, trying to figure out what's going on. But what's clear is John isn't expecting a resurrection either. And while John stoops, sort of dazed, looking into the tomb, Peter catches up and, and goes straight into the tomb. I don't know if he has to give John a hockey check before he goes in, but he goes straight in. And verse 6 says that Peter saw the linen wrappings lying there. A little bit of Greek here. The, the Greek word under the word saw here is different than the Greek word John used for when he saw. When John saw, he uses a word that uh, it's just a basic word for saw. He saw the linen wrappings. That's it. Didn't do anything with it. He just saw it. When Peter saw, though, the Greek word used here is theoreo. Peter is studying the evidence before him and he's developing a hypothesis a theory to explain what is going on here. And part of what I think he's trying to sort out is why the linen cloths are situated the way they are. Something doesn't add up. If someone had stolen the body, why would they take time to unwrap the body? That's weird, right? No one would do that. But even if they had unwrapped the body, maybe looking for valuables or, or expensive spices... They certainly wouldn't have taken the time to refold all of the linen garments to look like they were when they were wrapped around Jesus' body. And if they did that, they would have gotten what they came for. So why would they take the body? None of this makes sense to Peter. And actually, it shouldn't to us either. If you're a person who's inclined to believe in a someone-stole-the-body theory, it doesn't really make sense. You need a better theory, okay? Well, Peter is inside there trying to sort this dilemma out, John, the disciple who got there first, now goes into the tomb. And verse 8 tells us that when John goes in, he sees with yet an, a third Greek word. And this word means to see with spiritual eyes, spiritual perception. And it says, when John saw in this way, he believed. For, for John, a light has turned on. It doesn't mean that he understands everything that's happened. Verse 9 tells us that they didn't understand everything, but he's given just enough spiritual sight to believe. And then in John's rather unspectacular way of telling this story, he says, then they went home. Now, sometime after Peter and John leave, Mary Magdalene comes back to the tomb. Now remember, she's, she's run twice the distance that the guys have. She ran to get them when she saw that the stone was rolled away and then ran after them when they came to the tomb. And Mary hasn't seen what Peter and John have seen yet. She hasn't reached the conclusion that John has. Mary's still looking for a dead body. She's emotionally exhausted. She hasn't 
slept much during the past week, and now she's run a good distance from the tomb and then back to the tomb. Verse 11 tells us that as Mary stands outside the tomb weeping, she looks inside for the first time. And Mary doesn't see the same thing that Peter and John saw. It's not that the grave clothes weren't there, but something was there that wasn't there when Peter and John were there. If you followed that sort of weird path, right? There's two angels sitting on the platform where Jesus' body had been before, one where the head would be, one where the feet would be. And the angels ask her, why are you crying? Why are you crying? See, they know what's happened, and maybe they expect everyone else should know too, but they ask her, why are you crying? And through tears, Mary answers, because they've taken away my Lord. I don't know where they have put him. See, there's still no resurrection hope here. She just wants to know where those who took the body have put him. Charles Martin has has written what I think is a wonderful book about those who believed in Jesus and his resurrection. The book's called They Turned the World Upside Down. And and Martin has a wonderful way of imagining uh, how this story plays out. And he imagines that between verses 13 and 14, one of the angels sort of motions to Mary. Look behind you. You kind of picture it. And then in his telling of verses 14 and 15, he says, Mary turns and sees the gardener. Finally, somebody normal she can speak to. His voice is calm, soothing, like water. Ma'am, why are you weeping? He says. Whom are you seeking? And controlling both her anger and her grief, she says, Sir, and she points to the tomb. Her finger is shaking. Tears and mucus are pouring off her face. If you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. And then Martin says, Then in what is certainly the single greatest moment in Mary's life, the gardener cracks a smile. He speaks. And when he does, Jesus uncloaks his divinity. He simply said her name, Mary. And in that single word, the voice and person of Jesus has returned. He's alive. And Mary believes. For whatever reason, Mary didn't recognize Jesus by his looks. Something was different. But when he speaks, when he says her name, there is no mistaking it. For Mary, seeing wasn't believing, as it was for John. Hearing was. Jesus had called her name before. Mark's gospel tells us that Jesus had cast seven demons out of Mary, and probably because of this, she would have been perceived as mentally ill 
when those demons took hold of her. No doubt Jesus had called her name during that exchange. Mary, Mary, it's okay now. Mary, they're gone. Mary, I'm here. Jesus had called her name before, and when she hears it this time, she recognizes the voice, she recognizes the tenderness, the mercy in his voice. And in response, Mary gasps and says, Rabboni, which means my teacher. It's not a formal title. It's it's a familiar one. A lot of people call me pastor, and there's a big difference between when they're just using a title when they're referring to me as their pastor. You can hear it, right? And it's fine if you just use a title. That's fine. I don't, I'm not mad at you or anything, but you can tell the difference. This is different here. Mary recognizes that the man who is standing in front of her is not the gardener. He is the one who cast the demons out of her, valued her as something different than a crazy woman that everyone else thought she was. This is Jesus, the the rabbi who had invited her to sit under his teaching as a disciple, something that would have been seen as scandalous by the other rabbis, religious teachers of the day. But Mary knows that this is also Jesus who had been brutally lynched three days earlier. She saw it with her own eyes. She saw them take him off the cross, lay him in the tomb. She saw him dead. But here he is. And he's alive. Apparently, Mary threw her arms around Jesus, a a response, we think, of, of just joyful Worship, because Jesus has to ask her to stop clinging to him, saying that he hasn't yet ascended to the Father. And then come these remarkable words. Jesus says, go and tell. Don't miss those. Mary Magdalene, this former demon-possessed woman, most likely perceived as insane, is the first missionary evangelist of the resurrected Lord. For this reason, many Bible scholars call her the apostle to the apostles. This was a question on Jeopardy last week. That's kind of weird, but... Mary's name is mentioned more than most of the apostles in the New Testament, and more than any other women. Why do I point that out? It's significant, I think, because if you were trying to make up a story in the first century about a man who claimed to be the Son of God rising from the dead, this is not the way to tell the story. In fact, Celsus, a first century Greek philosopher who hated Christianity, used this, Mary Magdalene, as one of his arguments against the validity of the resurrection. He said, how can anyone expect rational men to believe the testimony of a hysterical female? Sorry, ladies. That's what he said. 
And he was able to make that argument because he lived, as, as Jesus did, in this misogynist uh, time where people didn't value women. And yet all four gospel accounts have women as the first witnesses to the empty tomb. Matthew, Mark, and John record that Mary Magdalene was the first human to see the risen Christ. And those same three gospel writers have Jesus telling Mary to go. Apostle means sent one. Go and tell the others. So I think these guys are either really bad at writing compelling fiction or they wrote the facts as they were. And notice what Jesus calls the disciples that he's sending Mary to. He calls them my brothers. Up to this point, Jesus had never called the disciples his brothers. Something has changed here in the resurrection. Something has changed in the relationship. Up to this point, he had referred to God as my father, Jesus' father, but never your father. One commentator says that Jesus is defining a whole new standing for believers in the divine household of God where we have become brothers and sisters with Jesus, with God as our Father. So Mary goes and finds the disciples and tells them that she's just seen Jesus. Luke's Gospel, we read that the the disciples thought she was crazy. They said, this is pure nonsense. Again, they weren't expecting a resurrection, right? Verse 19, we learn that later that night, the disciples were huddled together in a locked room. Added to their grieving is fear. Fear for their lives, really. If they believed anything right now, they believed that the Jewish leaders were going to do to them what they had done to Jesus. And as they are discussing, maybe even arguing in hushed tones about what had really happened and what they should do next, Jesus walks in and says, peace be with you. Jesus walked in to a locked room and said, peace be with you. One of the prophecies uh, about Jesus was that he would be called the Prince of Peace. We looked at this at Christmas time. Jesus walked into a locked room and spoke peace into the disciples' fear. How did he get in there? Don't know. Door was locked. Suddenly Jesus shows up. Luke's telling of the story. We learned that they initially thought he was a ghost. Again, these guys saw him die. And then Luke records that while they stood there in disbelief, Jesus said something like this. Guys, I'm kind of hungry. You got anything to eat? And they came up with some broiled fish and he ate it while they watched. I imagine a huge grin on Jesus' face as he ate while they watched in wonder. I also imagine that he said, didn't your mothers tell you not to stare? (laughs) We don't know how this happened. 
Jesus' resurrected body was, was both the same and different than before. He was both tangible and touchable. Uh, Mary could hug him. Uh, he showed the disciples his crucifixion wounds. He could sit down at the table and, and eat food. But his body was somehow different, too. He walked through a locked door. And he didn't want Mary to cling to him because he hadn't ascended to the Father yet. This story has already shown us that you don't have to understand everything about Jesus in order to believe in him. It is possible to perceive just enough to believe and leave room for wonder. And then grow in your understanding. Thomas wasn't there that night. Uh, so there were just 10 of them in that room. Uh, the other disciples told him about it. They told, them, told Thomas that they had seen the Lord, but Thomas said that he wouldn't believe it unless he saw and touched the wounds in Jesus' hands and sighed. Well, eight days later, the following Sunday, Thomas got his opportunity to see and hear and believe. Verse 26 says that again the doors were locked and just like before, Jesus was suddenly standing among them and he gave them the same greeting, peace be with you. And then without anyone telling him uh, about Thomas's doubt, Jesus moves to Thomas and says, look at my hands, put your finger in my side. And then Jesus leans in as he invites Thomas to put his hand in the wound in his side and he whispers, stop being faithless. Believe. And just like that, Thomas gasps and says, my Lord and my God. That's Thomas's prayer of faith. He's the first person in John's gospel to call Jesus God. In John's introduction, he talks about how the Word was with God and the Word was God. And here in the last full chapter of the book, Thomas affirms that the Word is Jesus. I think Thomas gets a bad rap. He doesn't really doubt any more than anyone else in this story. Uh, he doesn't doubt any more than we do. When we weave together the various accounts of the resurrection, Thomas appears to be the third or fourth person to believe in the resurrection, ahead of most of the other disciples. Uh, while he may have come from Missouri, um, the show me state, I think we probably should call him believing Thomas. He believed pretty early on. Well, chapter 20 ends with John telling us why he wrote all of this down. Uh, verse 30, he says, The disciples saw Jesus do many other miraculous signs in addition to the ones recorded in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you will have life by the power of his name. So again, the word believe shows up. There's a shift that, that happens here in the story. So far in John's gospel, John has been telling a story of Jesus, uh, of the things that Jesus did. He's been looking back at events that have already happened. 
But here the view shifts from looking back to looking ahead. John says that the purpose of this writing is so that you might believe and have life. It's a message for his future readers. It's a message for you and for me. When Thomas confessed his belief in Jesus by saying, my Lord and my God, Jesus replied by saying, you believe because you have seen me. Blessed are those who believe without seeing me. That's you and me. I sat with this story this week and and thought about the various characters and what brought them to belief. And and I think maybe we share some things in common with these people. First thing I thought about was expectations. As I said, no one in this story was expecting Jesus to rise again, which is interesting because Jesus had told them that he would. Uh, In Luke's telling Uh, of the story, the angel reminds the women of what Jesus had said. In John's account, uh, he says that, that he and Peter didn't understand the scriptures that said that the Messiah would do this. Uh, In Mark's gospel, Jesus had told them explicitly at least three times that he would rise again, but their expectations were off, way off. Their expectations were way too small for what God actually had planned. And so I just want to ask you all this morning, what are your expectations of Jesus? Could it, could it be that your own unbelief maybe is because your expectations are just too small? Another thing that, that might be keeping people from belief is, is fear. The disciples were hiding behind locked doors. Verse 19 says that they were afraid of the religious leaders. At this point, they're not afraid of Rome, even though they would later have good reason to be. They're afraid of the religious people. Some of you here this morning might be afraid of religious people. You might be one of those who say that the church is full of hypocrites. I can't believe in Jesus. I recently heard someone say, no, the church isn't full. There's always room for more. (laughs) Sorry. But I I do want to ask you this morning to be careful about not following Jesus because some religious people get it wrong. Maybe you're afraid of something else. I don't know. What What I see in this story, though, is that Jesus has the ability to show up behind those locked doors of fear and speak his peace into those fears. He can do that. A third barrier uh, is, the, is, is the barrier of doubt. You're here this morning and you want more evidence, right? The problem is a lot of times people say there's no proof and they never examine the evidence that is there the evidence that is available. So don't make that mistake with something as important as the resurrection. I want to recommend a book that um, I've, I've recommended before. Um, it, it may at least help you to start examining some of the evidence. Uh, it's a book by Lane Webster uh, called Resurrection Shock. Did the disciples get it right? And... Uh, 
Webster isn't afraid to ask the hard questions. And he provides a lot of good answers to those questions, good evidence. Uh, whether your issue is expectations or fear or doubt or something else, here's something I think all of us this morning need to identify with Thomas and Mary on. Because for both Thomas and Mary, the turning point was hearing Jesus speak. Thomas professed Jesus as his Lord and his God when Jesus whispered in his ear, stop being faithless, believe. Mary's belief came when she heard Jesus say her name. What I hope you understand this morning is that Jesus is calling your name. He's calling you to stop being faithless and believe. It might be a whisper so quiet, only you are hearing it in your heart. It might be so loud this morning that you're kind of looking around to see if other people are hearing it too. It's that blatant that Jesus is calling you. Jesus is calling all of us to believe. And John says that that believing leads to more and more life, abundant life, everlasting life. Will you hear him? Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for speaking to us this morning. I pray that in this moment we will each hear you calling our names. I pray that we would recognize your voice as the most real voice we have ever heard. I pray that we would hear you say to each of us, stop being faithless, believe. Keep calling our names, Lord. Keep calling us into deeper belief. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.